audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. It was kind of like just the, um, the avalanche of different things happening in life. The first one was... Uh, Addison being encouraged by her, her future basketball coach to run track this year. She did not get that from any, any Donna or myself. No track for us, all right? Yeah, I, I've, that's, not, that's just not my world. I mean, it's just not. So, um, so she, she decided to do this for the purpose of making her coach happy. That, that was the whole purpose of it. I am going to those track meets to watch because that's what you do when you're a parent. It wasn't like, I mean, I love going to basketball. I love going to volleyball. I love going to that stuff and watching track. I was like, "Mm, I'm not too sure about this one. And then I went to it and I was like, this is pretty cool. This is really, really pretty cool. I mean, the camaraderie of it, seeing these kids cheering each other on um, and, and parents right there in the middle. I mean, it is it is a pretty cool deal. It really is. So that was a little bit of motivation of like, you know, it just might be time. Maybe, just maybe, maybe, maybe to get in shape, okay? Now on the heels of that, as you know, JB along with Derek decided to run a marathon, okay? And JB has told me there have been so many people who have found out about him doing that who said, that's something I'd really like to do. I'm not one of those people. I have no desire whatsoever to run a marathon, half marathon, quarter marathon, eighth of a marathon, a tenth of a marathon. I, I got, I'm not, no, just no, no desire. But he's doing that, so I'm thinking, if he can do that, surely I can go to the gym for the first time in 12 years. 12 years. I mean, when I came here to Deering, umpteen whatever times ago, um, I was like an in-shape person. I I was. And I thought, I can get there again. I can get there. And so, Don and I, we, we started going to the gym. And I'll tell you what, I hopped on that treadmill. And after doing this for about three weeks, I am bumping up my mile per hour to 7.2 miles an hour. 7.2 miles per hour. I was pretty excited about that. I'm trying to bump it up just a little bit every week. Trying to run on it three or four times a week. And and I was like, 7.2 is not bad. That's not bad at all. Okay? Until I heard from JB and Derek about the guy who won the marathon last week. Now, that wasn't JB and Derek. You know, I'm proud of them for going and running and finishing. But the guy who ran the marathon... Well, first of all, let me tell you, I run a little over a mile, okay? This is my little warm-up thing. I walk a little ways, I run, and then I walk some more, and then I go and lift weights and all of that sort of thing. And I run, I run, now total, I go almost like a mile and three quarters, but I'm walking part of it, you know? So I run a little over a mile. This guy who won the marathon, 20 years old, he's from Bartlesville. He ran 26 miles and averaged 10.5 miles an hour. Do you, do you know what that math comes up to? He ran 26 miles in two hours and 30 minutes. That is unbelievable. 
all right? And I immediately didn't think too much about my 7.2, woo, 7.2 miles an hour, a little over, did it for a whole mile this time. That's pretty good stuff, you know? I think I'm going to wait a little longer. Tyro had their 5K benefit run yesterday. I think I'm going to wait a little longer before I jump in to something like that. You see, when it comes to running or a whole host of other things, I know my ability. I should say my lack of ability. And that means staying humble, okay? The message of Scripture, and actually, brothers and sisters, the message of life, itself is this humble yourself or be humbled humble yourself or be humbled folks we've all seen it play out numerous times in life people who refuse to humble themselves what happens to them somebody else humbles them that's just the way it works. Solomon put it a little bit different way. He said this, pride comes before the what? The fall. And he could have spaced that out, fall flat on your face in front of everybody, okay? Humility, that's what we're digging into this week. Humility. Let me tell you something about humility. In the culture of Jesus Christ, that first century Greco-Roman culture, humility was not an esteemed virtue of the day. It was not. But the New Testament writers saw things differently. And several of them quoted Solomon from the Old Testament. Peter put it this way. He said, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, and also an author in our New Testament, he said something just very similar than that, quoting Solomon. And he followed it with this, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Not to be outdone, the Apostle Paul gives us probably the most well-known motivation and challenge for humility found in all of Scripture, and it is found in Philippians, if I told you, Philippians chapter 2. Let me tell you a little bit about the letter to the Philippian church. It was a church in Philippi, and Paul was not only loved these people, he was proud of them. And they brought him joy. As a matter of fact, it's called the joy letter of the Bible because over 60 times Paul talks about the joy that is brought to him from the example of these Christian people in Philippi. But even amongst them, Paul said there is room for improvement. As a matter of fact, near the end of the letter, he called out two ladies in the church by name, Euodia and Syntyche, and they weren't getting along. And he urges them, you need to get along. For the health of your relationship and the health of the entire church, you need to get along. So even amongst this church, it was made up of people, therefore it was not perfect. And he encouraged them. And this is what his challenge, his encouragement looked like. Now, prefacing what we are going to look at today, we, we can't read the 7th, 8th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth verses without looking at what comes before it. And we can't even look at what comes before it without looking at what, what comes before that. I know that sounds kind of confusing, but that's the sum total of Scripture. You look at what's around it. So when you look near the end of chapter 1, you see something that flies off the page and would sound a little strange to those who don't understand 
what it is to walk in the shadow and the glory of Jesus Christ in this world. And Paul says this, verse 29 of the end of chapter 1, and it's not going to be on the screen behind me, I'm just putting this out there to set this up, okay? Paul says this, for you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, it's like, okay, yeah, I like that, and then get this, but also suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Paul was writing this letter from prison. And Paul was letting them know it has been granted to them not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So it is that picture of a humble life situation that we find what comes next. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ. You know what that encouragement, what that pictures in the Greek? It's this, strengthening. If you gain strength from Christ. If there is any consolation or comfort of love, if there is any fellowship, Greek word koinonia, it is a togetherness that comes through Christ, and it is a powerful word. If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but, catch this, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Now, where my mind is often gone with that is this, my interests, my wants, my desires. Don't just look out for my wants, my desires, but look out for the desires of others. But that is not a big enough picture to what this word is getting at. It's talking about the qualities in people. In other words... Don't be living life in such a way that you will be praised for the qualities that you live out. If it happens, it happens. That's not the reason you live this way. But on the other hand, when you see other people's qualities, when you see someone living for Christ in an effective, powerful way, what should we do? We should praise them, encourage them. And then Paul goes on to say this. We see it in, in, in verse 5. This is the thing we've got to understand is Paul's go-to when it comes to an example of humility or an example of a humble heart. Every time Paul goes to the same place. Our prime, our perfect example, and you know who it is, is Jesus. And look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And what follows Paul's encouragement to look at Christ for your motivation to live a life of humility. To live life humbly. What follows this is people don't really know this day if, if, if what we find in the next three or four five, six, seven, eight verses, okay, was a hymn that was popular of the day or if this is something that Paul put together himself. We don't know that because of the rhythm of it, because of the easiness which in the original language it is put to music. So this very well could have been a song that was sung about Jesus and what he did. Now what Paul does is he takes that hymn, he takes that song, and from that shows us what 
Christ did. And the first thing we see in this is this. Christ humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. You know, humbling yourself, humbling myself, you know what that is in life? It's like putting on Kevlar. I mean, it really, really is. It makes you bulletproof. And what I mean by is this. How in the world can you attack someone who lowers themselves voluntarily? You understand what I'm saying here? It's like you can't get to them. You might try, and hopefully you don't, because hopefully you're not attacking anybody in that way, but you cannot humble someone who voluntarily humbles themselves. It's just not going to work. And, and the Kevlar looks in this way, knowing that I am going to mess up because I'm human, I precede that with lowering myself and letting those around me know, yes, I'm, I'm going to mess up. It's going to happen. That's Kevlar. And if, if you don't live that way, start living that way. It's a great way to live. Okay? But Jesus humbling himself... His voluntarily humbling himself was completely different. Why? Because he didn't mess up. It wasn't a precursor. It wasn't him preparing the room for his failure. Because he never failed. So his humbling looks entirely different. Let's dive into it. Verses 5 and 6. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that can be a little confusing. What is this getting at? Something to be grasped. When I think of something to be grasped, I think of grabbing a hold of something. Like, I want that. I'm going to grab a hold of it. Or I think of this. I've got a hold of it. I'm not letting go. Okay, that's, that's what I, I, I think of. That doesn't paint the perfect picture of what Jesus did here. I can think of another occupant of heaven who tried to grasp something and because of that he was thrown from heaven and his name was Satan. And Satan wanted to be like God and his pride drove him to this and he tried to grab a hold of something that was not his and as a result He was removed. He had to leave the premises. And he lost the level of authority that he had. It was his pride that led him being expelled from heaven. But this is different. Jesus was and is God. It wasn't like he was trying to grasp onto something that he was not. He was God. So the proper version of this grasp, the correct, the correct way to look at it is this. It's a view of assertion. It's instead of asserting Jesus, instead of asserting his position as God, he voluntarily renounced his divine advantages. He didn't hold on to them. He let them go. Voluntarily. And verse 7 goes on to explain this a little bit more. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
There is something we have to understand about this hymn, this song, this verse, and it's this. It would be impossible for Jesus Christ, be impossible for him to renounce his divine nature. When he was here in this world, he was God. To leave that behind is impossible because he was God. And it says that he came in the form of a bondservant. He did not exchange his deity for slavery, for being a slave. He, he didn't like, okay, I'm going to let go of this one and I'm going to grab a hold of this one. The under thing we need to understand, when he was here as a slave, as a bondservant, he was still God. And I know that sounds confusing to us and some people unfortunately will never get it that this man was also and is also God we get it fortunately a perfect example of this from scripture now you don't have to turn there but in John 13 we see something pretty incredible take place We call it the Last Supper. It was Jesus, and he gathered around those 12 closest men, the ones who had followed him for three years now. No, no, don't get me. There were more than just this 12 that followed him, okay? But these were the inner circle. These were the ones. And he had that Passover meal with them, and we know what happens next. So we see a lot taking place in this very intimate this very close and personal supper with Jesus but before things are even getting rolling if you put Matthew Mark Luke and John together I believe it's Luke that tells us that the disciples are arguing about who's greatest okay Jesus is about to lay everything on the line and they're arguing probably has something to do with this. Well, I want to sit there. Well, I want to sit there. I want to sit there. Well, I'm better than you. Well, I'm going to be greater than you when the kingdom comes. I mean, they still have no idea what's about to happen, okay? You know what Jesus did to paint the picture and change their mindset like that? He took a towel. He took a basin. He got on his knees And he washed those men's nasty, disgusting feet. Now let me tell you something. When he did that, when he did this, when he washed the nasty feet of those disciples, this action made him no less the teacher, the rabbi, the Messiah. He was still their Messiah. As a matter of fact, Peter says, you're not washing my feet. Jesus says, well, if, you, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be a part of all of this going on. And Peter says, well, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. And Jesus like, okay, your feet's enough, Peter, all right? You see, the reason Peter said that is, you're the Messiah. You're not going to wash my feet. It wasn't that that action made Jesus anything less than who he was. Likewise, his voluntarily Humbling himself, coming as a man, made him no less God. He was still God. Now, don't let the end of verse 7 fool you here. It says, and being made in the likeness of men. Jesus was not God in a human-like form. He was and still is human. 
the writer of First and Second John near the end of our New Testament, and also chronologically speaking, it was near the end of the New Testament, one of the last things written. And John, there was this little thing starting to come up by the end of the first century that, that Jesus guy, he was really just kind of, a, kind of a spirit. He wasn't really man. He just kind of came looking like a man. And John's like, no, he was God. And he was man. You understand, if you remove that, that manness from who Jesus was, then he didn't really die. He wasn't really buried. He didn't really arise from the dead. Because he wasn't really human. And John attacks that message. The, the fancy name for it was called docetism. And John, the apostle John said, that teaching is from the Antichrist. Jesus was and is fully man. He still is. Now, he has a glorified body now because he conquered death. I'm getting ahead of the ball game here. All right. In summary, Paul states it very well. This first part of what we're looking at, this Jesus humbling himself is summarized so very well. And you don't have to turn there. Quentin will put it up on the screen behind me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth encouraging them to be generous in giving. Because there, were, there was a church in Judea that needed giving. They were, they were in tough times. You know, it's a little bit like the video that we saw a little bit ago. We have brothers and sisters in a different part of the world. Things are difficult for them. So we are being encouraged to give, to help them. This has been happening for a long time. Okay? And Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth, which was a wealthy church. He was encouraging them to give. And to give, once again, as an example for giving, who does he use? He uses Jesus. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Yeah, he sums it up quite well. Jesus humbled himself for us. But that's not all of it. He also obeyed. He obeyed. Let me ask you something, brothers and sisters. What is so unnatural about obedience? (laughs) Parents, is there anything natural about obedience? Look at the examples of your children. Is there anything natural? It was so easy, so easy to get that you know, like they roll from those, those terrific twos. Is that what it's called? Been a long time ago for me. I think I remember it. Terrific twos. I think that's what... I see some of you like, what are you talking about? And they roll into that, that three-year-old thing, you know, theatrical threes, okay? And, 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 and it's like, this obedience thing for my kid was perfect. I mean, they were... I mean, it's easy. They obey every time. I don't even have to ask them to. They just do it. Is that anybody's experience whatsoever? What is so unnatural about obedience? You know what it is? It requires humility. It requires saying, okay, I want this, but you want that. And I respect you, so I will do what you want me to do. Not because I want to do it, but because you want me to do it. And it's so unnatural. (laughs) Jesus didn't just come as a man. 
You would think that God becoming man to show us how to live perfectly would be enough. You think that would be enough because no other God has done that, okay? Jesus came, and as a byproduct of what he came to do, he showed us what it is to live the perfect life, to always put others in front of ourselves. He did it, and he did it with passion, with perfection. And you would say, man, alive, what more can we ask from God? That is, that is awesome. But he didn't just come to do that. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's words again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even death on what? On a cross. So you see, Jesus needed to humble himself further after emptying himself of his divine privilege and coming into this world, Jesus' entire earthly existence from manger to tomb is highlighted by genuine humility. The king of kings was born and laid in what? A feed trough. In the middle of a hick town in the middle of nowhere. The king of kings. He physically exited this world on a cross. Even death on a cross. This is the rock bottom of his journey of humiliation. Brothers and sisters, there was nothing worse in that time and in that culture than dying on a cross You know what the Jews considered dying on a cross was? An anathema, a curse. You can read it in the New Testament as well as the Old. Cursed is the one who dies upon, who is hung upon a tree. Cultured Romans, get this. Cultured cultured Romans, you know, the, the higher class They considered even the Greek word for cross an obscenity. They wouldn't even say it. It's not something you say in college. Don't say that word. Instead of saying staros, which was the Greek word for cross, they used the Latin word crux. Because nobody said that other one. At least in polite company, you did. Savior died on a cross. There's a reason why I'm dreading the last season of The Chosen. You've heard me talk about it a number of times already. As a matter of fact, second season is rolling now and the first two episodes have come out. I believe this past week the third one might have or maybe this week is the third one. I haven't watched any of the second season yet just because I don't want to watch it on a phone. And Don and I cannot figure out how to get our smartphone hooked up to our smart TV. Because we're not smart. All right? Drives me crazy. 
Somebody can come out to our house and show us how to do that. I won't pay you, but I will be very excited. Okay. I don't, I don't think it's because we're dumb. I just think because our phone and our TV, they're stupid. They're not smart. They're dumb. All right? Second season is rolling. I don't know how long it'll be before the last season rolls, but I'm dreading it. Because as I watch this very well done show, I feel myself getting pulled more and more and more into the scene. There's a reason why I've watched The Passion of the Christ one time. The day's going to come when our daughters need to see it and Donna's going to have to watch it with them. It's tough. You see, Jesus on that cross, it's just not right. It's heartbreaking. And it'll rip your heart out. It should. Guys, we cannot let the image of the cross on necklaces and on the front of our Bible covers and in the back of church buildings change our minds from the way that that time and those people viewed the cross. It was awful. And there was nothing redemptive about it before Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. What does that verse say? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus was humbly obedient. Obedient to what? Obedient to the Father? Yes, that's not it. Paul, who wrote this letter, also wrote the letter to the church in Rome. And in that letter, he made it very, very clear. As well, in the letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth, is this. The wages of sin is death. Death required payment, and Jesus humbly obeyed. Brothers and sisters, I am so thankful that the Christ hymn does not end in verse 8. It's not the end of the story. Verse 9. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are on heaven And on earth and under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
The story of Jesus does not end with the cross. The story begins again with an empty tomb. And he conquered death for us. Forever. Some of you might have thought, what is that? would you just say, preacher, is that true? When I said Jesus is still man, yes, he's still man. And he's still God. And when he rose, he gave us a picture of what is awaiting his people. Because we too will not be held by the grave. And for that, we are oh so thankful.